Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is Mr. Max Lugavir. And Max is a very interesting character and he's had an amazing journey. After his mother was diagnosed with a mysterious form of dementia, he put his successful media career on hold to learn everything that he possibly could about brain health and optimal performance uh, from a cognitive perspective. So for the better half of a decade, he consumed the most up-to-date scientific research, talked to dozens of leading scientists and clinicians around the world, and visited the country's best neurology departments, all in the hopes of understanding his mother's condition uh, more effectively. And so uh, he's been, he shares valuable insight through his social media platform and through his most recent book uh, called Genius Foods. And he shares insights on how you can improve your brain power, including the nutrients that can boost your memory and improve mental clarity and where you can find them, uh, the foods and tactics that can energize and rejuvenate your brain and your energy levels, no matter your age, and a, a, a brain boosting, that's a mouthful right there, a brain boosting fat loss method uh, so powerful that has been called a biochemical liposuction, which, you know, it probably does something right uh, when it's called biochemical liposuction. So with Genius Foods, the book, he actually offers a, a really interesting and cutting edge approach that's practical. It's really a practical roadmap to uh, eliminating brain fog and optimizing the brain's health and performance today and decades into the future. So Max and I dive into a few different topics. Um, we actually first, you know, Max shares his story of what he went through. We, we talk about mental health conditions and panic attacks. And, you know, we discuss anxiety a little bit. And then we actually talk about um, stress and dealing with uh, family illnesses and, and how we can actually approach some of those conversations and how to support our family and support ourselves when we're dealing with a loved one who is going through health issues. And this was a very interesting conversation for me because um, about a decade ago, my younger sister went through a number of heart surgeries because she had a, a pretty serious, well, maybe like a medium level heart issue. Um, but there were so many complications with her with her surgery. And it was really a, a strain on the family, a strain personally and and professionally, and, and it was a really challenging time. And so I wanted to have a conversation with Max, someone else who's gone through this, because I think that we've, we can all relate to that. We all have experienced in some way, shape, or form a family member that's been struggling or suffering and not really knowing uh, how to deal with that. And all of us at some point in our life will have to face the reality of supporting close family members as they are struggling through a health challenge. So we dive into that, and then we really dig deep into um, really a food and mental health, food and, and the type of food that you can eat for optimal brain performance, uh, how to feel better emotionally, cognitively throughout the day. Uh, and Max shares some of the best tools. And then we close things out. And this is really important for everybody out there that loves cold showers or has avoided them for a very long time. Uh, Max and I actually talk about the science behind cold showers and why they are so important. So before I bring him on, just a quick reminder to all the guys, head on over to Facebook, join the Man Talks community. We've got an amazing conversation going on there with uh, you know thousands of guys from around the world. We talk about everything from fatherhood to fitness to finances, spirituality, you name it, we talk about it. Uh, and just a quick reminder that we have a new 
an improved version of the Alliance coming up. Uh, it's going to be starting on November 1st or in the very beginning of November. And so if you've been looking to up your game, if you are looking for accountability, you're really wanting to improve uh, your life and have a group of men that are all working together uh, in unison from around the world uh, on things like mindset and relationships and you know mental health and your finances and your business, this is definitely a community to join. We've completely changed it up, opened it up. Um, we have made it much more accessible and affordable for absolutely everybody. So head on over to mantalks.com forward slash the dash alliance. Or if you go on the homepage, you can just check out the alliance. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you in there. So thank you so much. And without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Max Lugavir. It's great to be here, Connor. What a, what a treat this is. Yeah, I think uh, one of my close friends and past guests, Nick Onkin, introduced us, and he had nothing but raving reviews. And and my my COO actually uh, did a whole bunch of like you know background stuff on you, and she'd actually heard of you, and she was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm so excited for this interview, and so curious." So you've you've got a, a bunch of people that are already chomping at the bit to hear this. Oh man, that's so good to hear. Because you know, I mean, for me, it's really all about helping people and giving people the tools to make better decisions in their lives. You know, having people that really follow my work as closely as it seems that people are are doing these days is just, you know, to me, it's it's the most rewarding and gratifying feeling that I can think of. Because you know, a lot of my work is really motivated by something in my life that is actually quite quite painful and tragic, and so. Uh, for me, it's sort of like the silver lining, you know, it, it like motivates me and, you know, makes me feel good, which, uh, you know, at the end of the day, like, I, I love what I do. I feel very grateful that I get to kind of do what I love and what I feel, you know, best suited to do for a living. And um, the fact that it's resonating with people, I mean, that's just like a dream. So thanks again for having me and helping me spread my message, you know. Yeah, man. Thanks for thanks for being here. So let's let's dive in because it sounds, you know, obviously I, I know a bit about your background and and uh, you have a pretty incredible story. So I'm going to start off with the question that I always ask, which is, tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Yeah, well, for me, I mean, I would say that it's it's most definitely um, uh, related to uh, an experience that I had with my mom about seven years ago. Um, I'm the oldest child in my family. Um, my mother is firstborn, and I've always had a very close relationship with my mom. I love her very, very much. She's, uh, you know, I would say next to my cat, the most important female in my life. And, you know, we've just always had a very close emotional bond. And about seven years ago, I was coming off of working for a TV network called Current TV. It was a news and information network for young people. And I was very much like a prominent news anchor on the network. I was in my early 20s. It was, a, it, was a, it was a dream job. But one of the um, less desirable aspects of the job was that it kept me tethered to Los Angeles because I hosted this nightly show. And it would, you know, any chance that I would get to travel, I would always come back to New York City, which is where I'm from, to spend time with my mom and my younger brothers. But all in all, those uh, excursions were always fairly limited in relation to time because I always had to be pulled back to LA for a shoot or for work or something like that. So Seven years ago, I was um, in between jobs. Current TV had sort of run its course, and I was spending more and more time with my mother, which I loved. And it dawned on me and my brothers at a certain point um, that my mom started to display strange cognitive symptoms. She began to complain of, of brain fog and 
it seemed subjectively from from our perspective that it that my mom's brain power almost had sort of downshifted as if she had had a a brain transplant with a much older person um and of course i had no prior family history of dementia or any kind of neurocognitive disease so um it was not something that i had any framework to um identify or even speak about in an informed way and the changes to her cognition also coincided with a change to her gait the way that she um you know walks me and my brothers you know we didn't really think much of it other than this is just you know probably par for the course of normal aging right but we were all in Miami one weekend and my mom for the first time i remember we were sitting around the breakfast bar in my dad's house my parents are divorced but this was like one of the few times of year that my whole family would get together really you know wonderful time because my mom and my dad have maintained an amicable relationship and so we would always look forward to you know being together um, seeing the the rapport between my mom and my dad and and you know me and my brothers would all take a break out of our busy lives to all sort of converge in Miami and, and spend time together and it was there that for the first time my mom announced to the family that she had been having memory problems and had sought the help of a neurologist and you know again we had no basis for understanding what this could possibly mean so my dad in his sort of sardonic uh you know typical way said to my mom well if it's you know if you're having memory problems well, then what year is it obviously expecting her to be able to recall the year instantaneously but my mom actually couldn't she was really struggling and she she couldn't she couldn't tell us what year it was and me and my brothers we were so ignorant we kind of chimed in patronizing her and we were like, come on, mom, how can you not know the year? And we started like laughing at her, like thinking that she was really kind of just, you know, attention seeking. And she started to cry. She broke down. She started to cry. And for me, that was the moment where I realized that I needed to uh, take this seriously and step in and start going to my mom, going with my mom to these doctor's appointments. And so I did. So I started, you know, in New York City with her. Again, I was between jobs and I had a like a sort of an atypical job. So it, it allowed me the time to be able to do that. And we began at NYU because my mom lives across the street from NYU. We ended up going to Columbia uptown and really not able to find any sort of concrete um, answers. In, uh, in every instance, we were met with what I've come to call diagnose and adios. And so we just kept, you know, we broadened, we, we cast a wider net. We went to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Ultimately, the journey took us to the Cleveland Clinic because the Cleveland Clinic is known, Connor, for taking on like really complex medical cases because what they do, at least my understanding at the time, was that they assemble a team around the patient. They bring in a cardiologist, a neurologist, an endocrinologist, and they kind of have a, an all-hands-on-deck approach to diagnostics and the treatment of of you know, rare and complex illnesses. And it was there in Cleveland, Ohio, that my mom for the first time was diagnosed with some kind of neurodegenerative disease. And that week was probably one of the worst weeks of my of my life. But in particular, that that evening where my mom, you know, we filled those prescriptions uh, for the first time for, you know, neurological drugs, I began Googling and you know the the veil of ignorance that i had and and the fear and helplessness and anxiety all seemed to close in around me and it was the first time in my life i'd ever i'd ever had a panic attack i would say that was a a pretty defining moment for me as a as a person um 
as a as a son, but but really as a um, you know as somebody with agency in this world, it also was the point at which I became essentially unable to to focus on anything else, including my career at the time. And I, I became obsessed with learning everything I possibly could about diet and lifestyle and how these two factors are able to mediate our risk for a neurological disease and also mediate our cognitive function in the moment to moment. So that essentially kicked off a journey for me that continues to this day and will continue for the rest of my life. And that is understanding why this condition struck my mom and at such a young age, how to prevent it from ever happening to myself, and ultimately how to prevent it from ever happening to others that I care about and other human beings in general. So essentially what, you know, like I, I had this, this background in journalism um, and what that essentially did, you know, and I wasn't even really as cognizant of it at the time, but it essentially set me up to bat in a, in a really interesting way in the sense that journalists are kind of trained in a similar way to scientists. Now, obviously the, the rigorous, you know, level of academic training that a PhD um, will receive is, you know, a lot more intensive than um, working for a news and information network. I'm not, I'm not saying that they are completely analogous, but, or homologous, I should say, but uh, they are similar in the sense that, you know, as a journalist, you're trained to ask questions, you're trained to be a skeptic, you're trained to look at, you know, and understand what separates a, cre a credible source from a, a source that's less credible. And I basically began a sort of independent investigation into all of these topics, nutrition, diet, lifestyle, um, the foods that, that help our cognition, that harm our cognition, dietary policy over the last 50 years and how that's led the American people really to uh, a, a complete nosedive when it comes to chronic non-communicable diseases that now are responsible for 60% of deaths worldwide, according to the World Health Organization. And it's something that I really have decided to make my work about ultimately. And it's just been really wonderful to see it resonate with people. I mean, one of the things that I did uh, most recently was was release a book called Genius Foods, which came out about four months ago. You know, the book, I, I don't make any claims to be to, you know, have training that I do not. So I'm not a medical doctor. Um, but the book is the most thorough, what I would call meta-analysis of the latest research as it pertains to brain health and optimal brain function that exists. It's a, it's a care manual for the human brain, and it's a masterclass in, nu in nutrition. And I wrote it with a friend of mine who's a medical doctor, you know, just so that I could have a sort of clinical um, take on the concepts that I was talking about. And I was just so grateful to have it resonate with, you know, as many people as it did when it came out. So... On top of that, I've got all these, you know, other projects. But really, what it what it comes down to for me is the fact that my mom is not well, and it's the most painful thing I've ever had to deal with. It's I see her every single day. It's one of the reasons why I spend so much time in New York City, even though I'm, you know, more at home in California. But it's a, uh, it's just it's the worst thing ever. And I, you know, I've become so driven to help people prevent the same fate that all of my work is really about in some way getting getting either nutrition information out there um, a deeper understanding of biology uh, or just more generally how to how to live in a way that helps you know uh, minimize our risk or 
you know, any number of sort of related uh, factors, you know, like improve heart health or, you know, focus, attention, executive function, things like that. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, thank you, man. Thank you. I, I appreciate you sharing your, your story with us. And, you know, I think it's, it's so relatable to so many people who are dealing with family members with health issues. And while they might not be the same one, it's, it's such a challenging experience to be able to, you know, to have to be in a space where we see a parent suffering like that. And, you know, I, I watched my grandfather go through dementia and just started to really lose who he was as a human being, you know, and he couldn't identify people that were close to him and saw the impact of that on my father and, you know, wondered what, what that must be like for him. And, and so I, you know, I really appreciate the work that you're doing and, and the story that you just told. And there was so much in there that I really wanted to dive into. So I took a, <laughs> I, I was like, wow, I'm trying to like take just like mental uh, snapshots of everything that I wanted to touch on in there because you really, you know, your journey has taken you through so much. And so I think there's a few different areas that I want to touch on, but, you know, first, first I wanted to actually talk a little bit about the the panic attack. You know, I think that, um, we'll definitely get into the health and the and you know the food side of things, and there's some definitely some interesting conversations in there. But you know, I think this is something that a lot of people experience and maybe don't identify. You know, um, I know that back in the day, I had a few panic attacks, but I didn't think they were panic attacks. Where I you know was at work and was overwhelmed and had to take a knee and was short of breath, and so I'm I'm curious to get your sense of you know, your experience with a panic attack. And then, and then secondly, what actually causes that? What do people need to know about them and, and, and how to sort of um, not treat them, but maybe, maybe avoid their onset? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically, you know, and it's not something that I ha had ever had any experience with. I mean, look, the, 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 my academic training culminated in my undergraduate degree and I did happen to study psychology, but uh, I was not personally familiar with um, panic attacks because I, myself, you know, I've always been a pretty mellow guy. Like I've, I'm, I'm not, you know, I would say I'm not particularly neurotic. I'm not prone to anxiety, but you know what it, what it feels like suddenly, I mean, if I could describe it, it's, you just kind of feel, it feels like if you, you know, like if normal waking consciousness is sort of a, like a blank page, like a white piece of paper, having a panic attack feels like spilling an ink well all over that paper and watching the the black dark ink slowly seep across the paper enveloping your your consciousness to a point where you know all you can really see is what's immediately in front of you and you can't even really perceive that in a way other than just like black and white you know, a, a black and white sort of non-creative interpretation. It just it kind of it's it reduces your brain, I would say, to its most reptilian state because you're essentially having like a fight or flight response. You know, your body is just like in this like really handicapped mode where, you know, your heart rate increases, your 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 uh you know, you begin to hyperventilate. It could feel like the world is ending, um, essentially. And for me, what, you know, what triggered it was the fact that, you know, I just felt immediately overwhelmed by all of these questions. Um, and then the fear of not knowing if my mom was going to die, how long it, it would take, feeling sort of angry also, I would say, about the, you know, the healthcare system and just how, you know, even at the Cleveland Clinic, you know, it's, you really don't, you, 
I would say one of the one of the key things that people should really strive for in their lives is to stay out of of that that system you know the mainstream medical system because once you're in and you're on the drugs it's just like it can be such a nightmare you know i remember i was you know the doctor was he i was able to convince him to give me his email address you know normally you can't email doctors because they're not allowed to give or something like there's a there's a legal regulation you can't give uh you know, medical advice through email or something. It has to be tracked. And, you know, I had all these questions that I want to like email the doctor and ask him, you know, as I, as I began researching the drugs and, you know, what they, what they could potentially do for my mom. And because her diagnosis really didn't fit neatly into Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease, it was like this nebulous thing. Like none of us were ever really sure whether or not she had the, the right diagnosis. And so I, w- I would email the doctor and I would get back, like I would send the paragraphs and I would get back like one to two word uh, answers, basically. And it was just like, I felt so helpless and hopeless, like, and there was nobody that could help me. And I felt kind of ang- anger over my own ignorance, the fact that I wasn't educated about this stuff, the fact that I wasn't educated about nutrition in a way that was, that was accurate. I started reading about, you know, dietary interventions and the dietary guidelines over the past 50 years and how we've been so, you know, we've been led astray um, to such a profound degree when it comes to what we were told for 50 years was a healthy way to eat. And then comparing that with what's actually what the medical literature actually says about um, healthful diets. And I was just like, you know, I felt in many ways, like my mom was victimized. So it was like fear, helplessness, hopelessness, uh, anger, all this stuff sort of came on at once. And it was just like, you know, it's uh, like the default mode network in the brain. I just felt like it was just, it's, it overrided the system and it was too much for me to take in that moment. And thankfully, you know, they don't, they don't last very long. And I haven't really been able to identify at least subjectively the occurrence of a panic attack since then. But, but yeah, I mean, that was the first time that I ever conceived of the possibility that my mom could have some kind of incurable illness. And, uh, you know, that's a lot to take for any, any condition, anybody with a, with a, you know, a loved one who's not well can relate to that feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, such a, uh, such a great description that you just had, you know, consciousness being this sort of white blank piece of paper and then having ink spilled on it is really um i mean that was that was definitely my experience as well i had a few panic attacks this is probably almost a decade ago but very much the same thing it's almost like your system gets completely overwhelmed you sort of have anxiety behind the scenes or a sense of helplessness and all those things just start to encroach on you and then and then they sort of take you down and most of the time it's because of the what I found was it was just a lot of things that I wasn't dealing with in that moment. A lot of things I didn't want to acknowledge or know how to process. So you mentioned that that you you took your mom to the to the Cleveland Clinic, and I think that that's one of the that's one of the few hospitals that has access to um, uh, to Watson, which is the IBM uh, supercomputer that that really has access to like all the files and latest research and you know some of the some of the latest and greatest. Um, technologies and i'm curious in your in your studies how you've noticed technology shaping the way that we support people in this in the hospitalization system and and outside of that yeah it's a really good question i mean honestly i i've found technology to be 
helpful only in the sense that it allows me this, you know, incredible access to the world's research that, you know, prior generations didn't have access to. So it, it's empowered me in the sense that it's allowed me to better, you know, educate myself and become a quote unquote expert, you know, that people look to. Um, and it's, it's, I credit it all to technology because technology has allowed for the, you know, all of the world's knowledge to essentially be accessible to my fingertips 24 hours a day at the, you know, the sort of point of care for my mom, I would say it hasn't really been that helpful. Um, you know, the medical records, uh, system, um, for most hospitals is a Byzantine sort of thing where, you know, it's really hard to get access to and not every doctor, although this is changing, thankfully, you know, like my mom, you know, at, uh, she's currently at a hospital where it seems that her medical records are accessible to every doctor who tries to, um, you know, access them. But for her and for people of her age, you know, technology is not, I would say it's not super useful. And in terms of the treatments, it hasn't really offered anything, um, of note, Alzheimer's drug trials. I don't know whether drugs are now being tested using artificial intelligence uh, or anything like that, but treatments are very limited. So for me, when it comes to technology, I think it's it's more important to take a step back and look at the kinds of things that we're eating and how we're living our lives, and really to begin there. Technology is great in the sense that it can it can inform you and it can help connect you to other people, but when it comes to wellness. I take a little bit more of a of an old fashioned approach, I guess you guess you could say, or not even an old fashioned approach, but I think you know it all comes down to the basics, and that is nutrition and diet and lifestyle. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that approach. It's almost like it, it's putting the information, and the power back into the hands of of the individual, so that they can better educate themselves on on preventive measures, and then supporting themselves if they are sick. Which, which I definitely appreciate. Now, you know, one of the things that stood out around what you what you said when you told your story was that the systems, you know, the the, the hospital systems and the systems themselves, once you get into them. Um, are actually not that effective. And I, I would love for you to elaborate on that um, just to kind of give a little bit more context for it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's... Oh, where to begin? I know, it's, it's a big yeah. one, right? <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's a... We have a medical system that's just not set up to effectively manage the types of conditions that are now really burdening people and modern society and um, are responsible for the majority of deaths worldwide. You know, if you break an arm or have a, uh, a tumor that needs to be cut out or, you know, any number of like acute uh, or, you know, a, a congenital condition or something like that, you know, I mean, the medical system is, is great. You know, if you, if you get into a car accident, if you hurt yourself, I mean, that's, you want to go to the emergency room. Obviously there's a, there's a place for allopathic medicine, but chronic diseases, which are driven primarily by these non-communicable chronic diseases, which are driven primarily by diet and lifestyle. Diet and lifestyle are also going to be the same things that are going to most effectively treat them. And when we go see a doctor these days with the current insurance paradigm, I mean, they have 15 minutes to spend with you at most. And most people also, on top of that, really just want to fix the symptoms. They don't want to do the work when it comes to actually 
uh, regaining their sense of wellness. So it, to me, becomes a lot more valuable to um, talk about prevention than it is to talk about uh, treatment because um, the options for treatment for many of these conditions really are um, symptomatic. If anything, they treat the symptoms. They don't treat typically the underlying cause. Treating the underlying cause is really something, you know, you, most often than not, it's about, you know, dietary and lifestyle factors. Um, if you make it to the age of 40 today, you have an 80% chance of dying from uh, dementia, heart disease, cancer. You know, these are these are conditions that are, and while, we, you know, we don't have all the answers, but they're largely driven by dietary and lifestyle factors. And once you're plugged into the medical system and you're on these drugs, you know, many of them are not without side effect and procedures, you know, sometimes procedures can, can cause irreversible uh, side effects and things like that. So, you know, what I can say as a non-medical doctor and as somebody who has a, a loved one with a complex battery of uh, different conditions, I can just tell you that, you know, you really do want to try to uh, live in a way, you know, and starting earlier is better in a way that helps minimize your risk for ever developing any of these conditions. And, you know, we don't have all the answers, as I mentioned, like when it comes to preventing, you know, the or minimizing risk for the possibility of an autoimmune thyroid condition a decade from now, you know, maybe if you have a, a family history, maybe that means not consuming bread and gluten products, you know, and you might not have a major payoff because you're, again, this is prevention. But at the end of the day, what I try to do with my messaging and what I talk about in my book, Genius Foods, is that the same things that you can do that are going to um, assist in procuring a better tomorrow actually also make you, you know, feel better in the here and now and make your brain work better and make your digestion better. So um, to me, it's a, it's a sort of win-win mm. situation. And yeah, that's like, if I can help people stay out of hospitals by making healthier dietary choices or better lifestyle choices, then that, that to me is going to be, you know, a, a mission accomplished. Yeah. Well, and, and I think we're going to, you know, we're going to dig into pre preventative measures here and, and, you know, some of the connections between food and the diet and, and, you know, our, our mental health link and whatnot. But I was just curious, a question popped up um, in and around, how have you noticed yourself supporting the rest of your family through this experience because I, what i've seen in family systems and structures when this happens is that everybody seems to deal with it a little bit differently and i'm i'm curious if you've found you know on your journey of doing all of this research and really digging into it um how have you found yourself supporting the other members of your family and, and them supporting you in turn and what's been effective for that Oh man, so many ways. Well, when it comes to, you know, like, I think I'm the oldest child, so I'm kind of the man of the house. Uh, you know, that's what, what the oldest child in the family usually gets called. Um, my parents are divorced and my mom has a significant other who um, has been good in many ways in terms of his companionship to my mother, but who has been a an obstacle in other ways. And I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Um, so I'm, you know, the role that I play in my family is I'm my mom's healthcare proxy. And as obviously I'm very well informed when it comes to nutrition and health. Uh, and so I help my mom. Um, I basically make the decisions 
with my mom and with her healthcare providers. And I sort of communicate um, what's going on with my mom to my brothers and really, you know, many of these doctors, uh, what you'll notice, and I've, you know, encountered hundreds of doctors at this point, not all of them are the best, very few, I would say, are, are good communicators and very, and fewer have um, a, a bedside manner that is, I would say, appropriate when talking about, you know, sort of more grave conditions like, uh, you know, like what we're talking about when we talk about dementia and Alzheimer's disease and things like that. Um, and so, you know, I'm sort of like the, uh, the sensitive, informed science communicator guy that kind of is there to keep the consciousness of my family elevated and functioning at a, at a, at a high vibration, you know, with a focus on positivity, optimism, but also, um, a, uh, you know, uh, having an accurate sense of what to expect and, um, and, you know, a, sort of a, a finger on the pulse of the cutting edge of medicine and always, you know, having solutions there, you know, my brothers and my, and my mom's significant other and my dad, they're, they're not the most sensitive of types. You know, one of my brothers works in sales. The other is a computer programmer and I'm the artist of the family. So, so I kind of, you know, I, in many ways, I, I try to kind of bridge these, these different worlds in a way that kind of acts like an emotional glue for, for the people in my family, if that makes sense. Um, I also kind of, I have a very uh, profound relationship with the TV show Six Feet Under. And I don't know if anybody listening to this is going to remember that show or, you know, maybe is as obsessed as, as I was and continue to be of it. But my, my relationship with my mom and in my family is very much like Nate Fisher, like the oldest child in that show. So I'm just sort of there as the voice of reason, uh, bringing, you know, bringing everything together and communicating and communicating it in a way that, you know, keeps my mom's spirits high, keeps my brothers informed, um, communicates to my dad, what's going on, who's in Miami. And, uh, and also talks to the doctors because, you know, many, many people going through the medical system, the, the ignorance that we all tend to collectively have about our health is certainly exploited in many cases by the medical system. I mean, anybody need, you know, look only at the food served in most hospitals to realize that you really have to fend for yourself in this world, uh, including when it comes to medical care and health care. So, um, I'm always there, you know, like watching everything that my mom eats, making sure that uh, there's a, you know, she's striking a balance between quality of life and good nutrition. You know, I'm at this point, I want my mom to have the best quality of life that she can have while also trying to gently steer her away from the foods that I know are not good for her. So that's kind of, you know, and in turn, I've, I've helped influence the health of my brothers and, in, in a few ways, but you know, I'm, I'm also like the son, the child. So like, I can't say that I have the most credibility in my family. If only I had as much credibility in my own family as I have, you know, outside of my family and, you know, around the world, that would be amazing. But no, I'm in my family. I'm still just the, you know, the oldest son, but, but yeah, that being said, like it's, uh, 
I, you know, I'm doing my best. I'm trying to, trying to be there for the family while also balancing my own life, my own happiness, my own professional, you know, my career in its, in its nascent stages. And that's what it's all about. Balance. Nice. Uh, I like that. And I, I appreciate your perspective because I think, you know, I think so many people can resonate with that and, uh, and just sort of see not, not necessarily hope in it, but just, uh, a way of being that that's functional and that does balance those different, those different points. So, so on that note, let's, let's kind of dive into some of the, you know, some of the, the meat and potatoes of it. Let's, let's talk about food and, and the link to mental health. And I'm curious to get your, perspective because i know that this has been a an area that you've really looked at how does how does food actually affect your your emotional state let's just start there and and what do people need to know yeah so i mean it's it's been long known in the medical literature that there's a link between depression and um diet but what hasn't been so clear has been the direction of causality we know that when we're depressed we tend to reach you know more frequently for comfort foods and you know it's possible uh, that comfort foods also can create feelings of depression. And thankfully, thanks to a slew of um, small, I would say, but uh, meaningful clinical trials, we now know that for the depressed person, cleaning up one's diet, especially if the diet includes a bunch of junk foods, can have a meaningful impact on their mood. So, you know, we can talk about why this may be the case, but I think most interestingly, um, diet has a, a pretty profound impact on levels of inflammation in the body through a number of different mechanisms, but the link between inflammation and depression uh, is pretty staggering. There's even a new model of depression that um, clinicians and researchers alike are exploring. It's called the cytokine model of depression, the inflammatory cytokine model of depression. Cytokines are sort of chemical messengers, proteins that signal to the body that um, the immune system is on high alert. And so, you know, it would make sense that when suffering from some kind of infection, that the brain would have some hardwired adaptations to um, uh, encourage the healing of the individual while also preventing the spread of that infection to the herd, right? And any zoologist is familiar with what are called sickness behaviors. Any sick animal is going to retract from the herd and display um, essentially uh, the symptoms of a mild depression. You know, they lose uh, their appetites. They reduce, uh, they show display reduced grooming. Executive function seems to become handicapped. And so the thinking is that major depression is essentially a form of uh, extreme sickness behavior. And the problem with that, or I guess it's not a problem so much as a, the empowering news there is that today we know that our immune systems are being activated not so much by um, cuts and scrapes and pathogen exposure, but by the foods that we're eating. So our diet has become saturated with chemicals and oils that drive inflammation in our bodies. And the thinking there is that these foods can actually produce inflammation, which in turn can affect mental health. In, uh, in a number of ways. So really for me, what it's all about is getting back to a diet that um, reduces inflammation in the body and also gives the brain two important things. One of the, one of the key um, objectives of any diet that I'm going to recommend for brain health is that it's going to supply, it's got to supply the brain with healthy building blocks so that 
the brain can grow new brain cells, which we know the brain can continue to do up until death. So the most important um, of the dietary brain building blocks is a long chain fat called DHA fat. This type of fat is abundant in the fat of wild salmon, of sardines. It's found in appreciable amounts in pastured and omega-3 enriched eggs and grass-fed beef. And essentially, you know, what I, what I implore people uh, to ponder is if they were building a house for their family, would they use building blocks made of like Ikea sawdust-based wood? Or would they use the best building blocks they could find if their family was going to live in this house? They'd probably want to use the best building blocks that they could find. And so DHA is a really important building block um, for the brain. And it's an essential fatty acid, meaning we have to get it from our diets. Many people... Um, are into omega-3s from plant-based sources. But the body, especially especially men, for the men listening, um, we're not very good at converting uh, these types of fats to um, long-chain DHA fats, which are in their usable form in the body. These kinds of fats actually have to undergo a process called elongation. Um, and we are not very good at that. Some people are better than others, depending on genes. We have yet to really fully elucidate um, you know, who is okay relying on plant-based forms of omega-3s. But generally what I recommend for most, for most people, if not all, is that they should really focus in their diets on getting DHA fat. Um, the other objective when it comes to diet is procuring an adequate amount of fat-soluble antioxidants. This is particularly important to the brain because the brain is made of fat. So when it comes to um, reducing oxidative burden, which is Essentially, you know, oxidative stress can be thought of as an excessive amount of free radicals that the body simply is just, uh, you know, like outnumbered um, in its defenses against. You really want to want to stack the odds in the favor of your brain by supplying it with fat soluble antioxidants. Vitamin E is one of the most important of these, and the foods that I highlight in my book Genius Foods are all, uh, or mostly, I would say, rich in. Um, multiple types of vitamin E, which is not something that any uh, vitamin E supplement on the market can really claim. So we've got there, again, grass-fed beef, which has three times the vitamin E of grain-fed beef. We've got avocados. Um, we've got eggs and uh, nuts. Almonds are a wonderful source of vitamin E. And so what that's doing is essentially by furnishing your brain with these fat-soluble antioxidants, you're providing your brain with a sword and shield to fend off against the insults that um, are ever present in the modern world. And so that's it, you know, by, by keeping inflammation down, by giving your brain healthy building blocks, by, by supplying it with fat soluble antioxidants um, and by cutting out foods that dr are going to drive inflammation. Um, I would say you're giving your brain in accordance with the, the best evidence that we have today, the best chance that it has against um, conditions like Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and also you're going to help, if these clinical trials like the SMILES trial, which incorporated Mediterranean style foods, all rich in these same, in these same types of nutrients, uh, if that, you know, has, is, would, holds true for the majority of the population, I would say it's also going to help your brain um, produce the healthiest mood that it's able to. So that I think is really um, what it all comes down to. And what I like to do is I like to make it really simple for people and to just give them the foods, like tell them what to actually eat. And so I call these foods uh, genius foods. And I talk about avocados, extra virgin olive oil, nuts, grass-fed beef, wild salmon, dark leafy greens, dark chocolate. 
eggs, things like that. These are all foods that are nutrient dense and they're concentrated in particular in the nutrients that um, are going to make your brain happy. I like it. It's a very simple way to uh, to actually like remember all these things and be able to dive in. And so uh, I'm curious, what, what are some of the things that, you know, you've mentioned a few times, like some of the things that are that are not so good for the brain. So let's let's actually talk about sugar. Um, just out of curiosity, because I think, you know, we hear a lot about carbohydrates and uh, you know, sugars and some of these things. And I'm curious from your perspective, you know, along the way, what what are some of the downfalls to things like sugars and maybe carbs, but specifically sugars on the brain itself? Well, I would say one of the one of the key issues with chronic consumption of carbohydrate containing foods, or I should say carbohydrate concentrated foods is that they keep levels of an ancestral hormone called insulin chronically elevated. And insulin signaling in the body is something that um, drives growth, for one. So for anybody concerned with, you know, cancer, um, you know, this is something that we should really be mindful of. But when it comes to the brain, it seems that insulin is, uh, insulin signaling is very important in the brain. And um, any, any biochemical signal in the body if it becomes too loud and too frequent, you can develop tolerance. And so tolerance to insulin is the hallmark of type 2 diabetes, which we now know is, uh, you know, incidence of which is skyrocketing in the modern world. Two-thirds of people in the United States are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. But insulin uh, in the brain plays a number of important roles, and it's believed that insulin resistance in the brain is essentially what drives Alzheimer's disease. In fact, Alzheimer's disease is being referred to these days um, by a growing number of researchers and clinicians as type 3 diabetes. So there's the importance of in insulin signaling. And then on top of that, there's the fact that insulin is the body's chief anabolic hormone. And the body, you know, it, it either wants to be in an anabolic state or a catabolic state. The body's never stagnant. It's always either building things up or breaking things down. And too frequently today, because, you know, your average American is consuming about 300 grams of carbohydrates per day, what that's doing is it's keeping levels of insul insulin chronically elevated, which is to say chronically in an anabolic growth state. As I mentioned, that is not good for um, oncogenesis, you know, the, the, the creation in the body of tumors and cancer cells and things like that. Um, but the body and brain have um, elegantly evolved to carry out numerous custodial processes in either state, either a catabolic state or an anabolic state. Uh, an example of a catabolic process would be autophagy, which is when cells basically clean up uh, the gunk, old worn out, you know, organelles that have become dysfunctional. Um, and that's a catabolic process. And we might actually want to um, spend more time in a catabolic state to encourage that uh, process to occur because, you know, for example, one of the um, organelles that's involved in Alzheimer's disease are mitochondria. And when old worn out mitochondria get gobbled up via this process called autophagy, it's called mitophagy. And mitochondrial dysfunction might be, you know, one of the key drivers of Alzheimer's disease, depression, other conditions. Mitochondria are essentially the power plants that give cells life. And so, you know, where insulin is concerned, I think it's not a bad hormone at all, but we just want to keep tighter reins over its production in our body. Um, and the key 
uh, I would say the most um, effective way of doing that is eating a, a low grain, low starch, sugar-free diet. Now that would seem pretty commonplace if you were a hunter-gatherer, but today, because 60% of the calories that we consume come from ultra-processed foods, you know, that actually is fairly difficult to do in the modern world, where 60% of our calories come from uh, rice, corn, and wheat, which are incredibly starch-dense. So I would say, you know, it's, uh, it's about cutting out the sugars, the juices, the sugar-sweetened beverages. I mean, those are the most blatant offenders, right? Candy, um, cereals, things like that. But then, uh, you know, it's the grain products, it's the granola bars, it's the bread products, it's the rolls, it's the wraps, things like that. Um, and then after that, you know, I think it's like brown rice, rice, things like potatoes. I think these are all foods that we should consider uh, consuming in moderation. Now, when it comes to, you know, the population level, people that consume whole grains generally tend to have better health. I mean, you can imagine, Connor, that if the only grain that you're consuming um, is quinoa, it's pretty fair to say that you are a health conscious person, right? I mean, most people that consume grains in the US, they're not consuming whole grains. They're consuming pulverized grains that are refined into a dust and used to create packaged processed foods. Um, so whole grain consumption does tend to be related to better health. But what I posit um, in my work and in my book, Genius Foods, is that these people's health, the, the, the health of people that consume whole grains, they're healthy not because of grains. They're healthy in spite of them. They're probably doing other healthy things. They're probably eating more vegetables. They're probably exercising more um, and stuff like that. Because when you consider the fact that when you consider the diets of most Americans that are consuming 60% by calories of ultra processed foods, it becomes clear that whole grain consumers are probably more health conscious. And so those are those are the limitations of observational epidemiological level studies. But uh, they're interesting. And I think that they're worth talking about, certainly. Um, but I, again, like to focus on the things that I know that the brain needs. And there's nothing in grains that the brain needs and part and, and also that you're not going to find in a more concentrated or bioavailable form in other foods, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And I, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting because my, my fiance and I did this, you know, 45 day cleanse cleanse that we've, we've kind of carried on. Um, but it, you know, it was, it was getting rid of any sugars, any carbohydrates and, and really just doing unintentionally exactly what you've sort of prescribed and laid out in genius foods and the and the result was absolutely like incredible you know the first 7 days i i think i was a monster like i just turned into like dr jekyll and mr hyde because i didn't have sugar and that's always been a just like a staple uh you know and and that didn't have bread or anything like that and it was it was so interesting to see how radically different my energy levels were throughout the day after that first week and throughout the rest of it, like it's just totally shifted my cognitive abilities, my daily energy abilities, my happiness levels. Like it's, it's totally been a, a 180. So, I mean, there's a, from a personal standpoint, everything that you've just sort of said and then backed up with some of your research and, and, you know, the, the science behind it definitely resonates with me. Um, I, I know that we're getting close on time here. So like the, the, the one thing that I wanted to touch on before, 
you know, before we closed out today was was just a few other tools outside of nutrition. And one of the things that we talk a lot about, or one of the things that I've really found to be empowering and, and really powerful is is cold showers and and things like cryotherapy. And I'm curious to get your perspective of why things like cold showers are actually effective for people or if they even are scientifically. Yeah. I mean, you know, we evolved with multiple different time types of stressors that our bodies have become honed to respond to in some ways negatively, but in some ways quite positively. So, you know, exercise is a great example of a stressor that our bodies respond to in a positive way, right? When we go to the gym and we endure a vigorous workout, our bodies adapt in a way that makes them stronger, more resilient, um, look better, uh, feel better. And so physical exercise, like the kind that we do in a gym, isn't the only type of stress or exercise for that matter. So what I'm a big fan of is I call thermal exercise. And this is because we also didn't evolve with chronic climate control. Um, you know, t we're incredibly adaptable as a species. And, you know, one thing that we love to do, especially today, is um, mold the, the ambience to fit our comfort levels. But we didn't always have the ability to do that. And so extremes in temperature seem to bring about a, a range of beneficial um, adaptations in the body on a similar scale as physical exercise. So I like to take cold showers because for me, it seems to increase mental vigilance. Um, it wakes me up. It reduces fatigue. It also boosts levels of a neurotransmitter called norepinephrine, which is involved in learning and attention. And norepinephrine in particular is, is uh, the hub of norepinephrine re release is a region of the brain called the locus ceruleus, which has actually been implicated as an early um, player in Alzheimer's disease. It seems to be, uh, some researchers have, have gone so far as to call it ground zero for Alzheimer's disease. And there is a decline in norepinephrine as the disease progresses. And it sort of correlates pretty tightly with disease progression, the decline of uh, levels of norepinephrine, which is involved in focus and attention. So for me, working out that that region of the brain, whether through physical exercise or through cold stress, definitely something that I would say is worthwhile. How cold showers relate to dementia and Alzheimer's disease, unknown. Um, but, you know, I would say some of the other benefits occur to our body's metabolisms and brain health relies on, on metabolic health. I mean, one of the things that having a um, better metabolic health does, it keeps inflammation low. And we already talked about some of the benefits of um, operating in a low inflammation environment. But cold exposure can encourage the proliferation of brown fat, which is a type of fat that's metabolically active. It's actually brown because it contains more mitochondria than uh, typical white fat, which is kind of the, the fat that we think of wanting to lose when we go to the gym. Brown fat is actually something that we want more of. Um, the more brown fat we have, the more insulin sensitive we tend to be. Um, it burns calories and it's involved in thermogenesis, which is the burning of calories to generate heat to keep our vital organs uh, warm. So all of these things happen when we take a cold shower, when we do cryotherapy, when we do a little bit of cold water immersion. And there's actually a, a Ukrainian holiday called Epiphany. And I actually don't think it's a coincidence that they named the holiday Epiphany um, long before we had the scientific understanding of what cold water immersion actually does for us. What the practitioners do is they cut holes in the ice of frozen lakes and they, they dive in basically. 
And uh, it's like this annual thing that they do. And, um, you know, I think it's it's probably, uh, you know, a, a hat tip, the name epiphany to the fact that cold water immersion seems to be really good for the brain. The caveat that I would give for your listeners is, you know, if you have a medical condition, I would definitely get clearance from your doctor because like exercise, it's a stressor, meaning it's not without risk. So if you have a medical condition, definitely just want to clear that with a doc. I like it. Well, I, up in Can- I'm from Canada and, and up there we have the polar bear swim. And it's a very it's a very similar thing where people will uh you know cut a cut a hole in the ice and and jump in or you know in the middle of January or February go go jump into the freezing cold ocean. So um listen man, this has been an absolute treat. I feel like we could jam on so many different topics. I feel like we, you know, just t- scratched the surface. So I think at some point I'll have to have you back on the show for a, a few different topics because, you know, this was super, super beneficial and really helpful and eye-opening in so, so many ways. So thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Connor. Thank you. And I'm a big fan of the podcast. So this has been a real treat. Thanks, man. And and for uh, for everybody that wants to check you out, where would you like them to go? Yeah. So, I mean, if you like to listen to podcasts, which uh, which I'm assuming that you do, I have my own show. It's called The Genius Life where I interview scientists and researchers and authors and just anybody who really can offer um, an insight into how to uh, live more fully and healthily. It's called The Genius Life Again. It's, um, it's in the health category on iTunes. And also go pick out pick up my book, Genius Foods. Again, it's a masterclass in nutrition. It's being used to teach uh, you know nutritionists and doctors and things like that. I regularly actually lecture, lecture to med school students and um, I've taken part in continuing medical education as a lecturer. So um, I think you'll really enjoy Genius Foods and also uh, social media. So I'm pretty active on Instagram and Twitter, Facebook, whatever you prefer to use. Come find me and say hi. Awesome. Thank you so much, Max. And for everybody that's out there listening, you'll find all the links to those uh, in the show notes. So you can definitely check that out there and definitely encourage picking up a copy of Genius Foods. It's worth a read 100%. Uh, so until next week, don't forget to man it forward, share this podcast episode with just one person that you think will find value in it. it goes a long way. Uh, leave us a rating and review. Uh, and until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.